0: Hello and welcome once again to episode 71 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So last week we took a deep dive into what SwiftUI is and how to organize data for it, Uh, but we left out one very important thing, the layout system. Yay the whole so, thing the whole the the rest of SwiftUI <laughs> step one draw the circle step two draw the the rest of the owl um yeah. so let's let's learn about the rest of the owl which is named SwiftUI um yeah. how does the layout system work since <laughs>
1: yeah well I think you went into pretty good depth on you know it's not this, it's not this thing that's actually Swift, but it kind of has its own, um, you know, syntax and everything. So the layout is kind of like we talked about, like this recipe where we say, okay, um, you know, I want a text field here, and I want some labels, and I want this all to be in a box that has a border or whatever. And so um, we'll kind of run through, I guess, the pieces of those things. And I, I think one thing that was um interesting for me is there are um basically i mean counterparts that uh, from ui kit in swift ui for example a ui text field has a text field or whatever Mm -hmm. um but kind of the crucial thing that is missing from uh swift ui as opposed to ui kit is constraints like we talked about last time right so Mm -hmm. i think the biggest thing is like when you make a swift ui view what it's asking you to do is it's got that body um, computed property that we talked about last uh, episode. And what it's asking for is a single view, right? Just one. And so the way to get around, well, okay, I need to have, you know, let's let's do one of Dimitri's screens, sort of like an entire view controller. You need more than one view. And so what you end up doing is you put the uh, more views in what is called a stack. So you've got H stacks, horizontal stacks. V stacks, vertical and Z stacks, which are kind of a depth stack. So those would be kind of the, I guess, building blocks of like, okay, well, I have this one view that, or I have this body that it wants me to return a single view. But, uh, within that single view of of like an H stack, V stack, Z stack, those are kind of the most common views to add multiple sort of, I guess you could think of them as sub views in a way, Mm -hmm. um, to to that body, if that makes sense. Yeah, so those... Arrange them as you, as you please. Sorry.
0: Yeah, th- those are the primitives that you get to work with. Um, and I think that's where, like, most people uh, either find SwiftUI to be exceptionally simple or too simple, in a way. Like, they're like, mm-hmm. well, if I don't have constraints and I only have these three primitives, how am I supposed to do anything? Like, SwiftUI is broken, I'm not going to be able to use it. And they then continue using UIKit, kit. Um mm-hmm. And... Although they are useful primitives to get like the majority of work done, they're not the only ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're just there as like the most basics of basic of basic building blocks, and in the end, they don't actually render to a real view, um, like a UI view uh, that you would get to UIKit. So as you said, like you have text fields which directly correspond to UI text field, like it's putting a UI text field on the screen when you use a Swift UI text field, um, but it's not actually rendering a view for your stack, unlike a UI stack view. Um, so SwiftUI just uses this as pure layout information, um, and it decides where to put your uh, leaf views, if you want to use like fancy terminology. Uh, basically, the actual components, um, it uses these stacks to, des- to determine where they are um, and where they should be positioned. Um, so it, it's it's a very different way of like thinking about it from UI kit like a stack is an actual object that's like on the screen um, mm-hmm. and you can't have something that like extends outside of a stack whereas with uh, with Swift UI like if you have a view that kind of extends outside via an offset or via positioning that you manually do or negative padding what have you, um, that view exists outside of the stack um, It's interactive. Outside of the stack, and that's something that you just don't get with UIKit. So that's uh, that's a pretty neat thing um, that you get for free out of the SwiftUI layout system because it is a layout system, as we said last time.
1: Yeah, it and okay, my experience is limited in this area, but it, it seems more like um, kind of what you do with like HTML and CSS than it is like with constraints. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. it's a little bit more. I don't want to call it fluid but it's it's less rigid than uh layout constraints are where it's like you are you know constraining this view to this view it's, it's very much kind of like a uh here's what i want make it fit type of thing mm-hmm. and with with like you said it's like it can kind of go outside of the range of those or the bounds of of you know the stacks in a sense where that's not really possible um in ui kit
0: yeah or at least it's Again anything's possible, but yeah. yeah, it's not possible without overriding especially the view itself and then uh, remanaging hit tests so that way it can go ahead and gobble things that are outside of its bounds and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of extra work you need to do to get that working um, in UIKit. In fact, if you have like a UI hosting controller, you can't really extend outside of that magical box. Um, it really is like self-contained but mm-hmm. if you stay within SwiftUI land uh then you do have a, quite a few options at your disposal in terms of positioning um and laying out things
1: okay so yeah and that was that was something that was weird for me again coming from something so rigid is how do i align things or you know uh, say i want maybe i have just kind of you know the um the bounding box of of a normal iphone screen just kind of this vertical rectangle you know, mm-hmm. how do I put something in the bottom right corner, maybe like, um, I don't know, like a tweet button or something like a little circle button to or whatever, right? How do I do that? Because there aren't constraints to say, hey, like pin this in, you know, on the bottom and trailing edge.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the stacks actually give get you this out of the box, like H uh, stack, V stack and Z stack, they all have an alignment property. Um, which you can change from the default, which is basically like center align the perpendicular axis. So uh, for H stacks, that would be center aligned vertically. For V stacks, it would be center aligned horizontally. Um, And Z stacks would just center it within the Z stack itself. But you can go ahead and say, hey, I want my Z stack to center everything according to the bottom leading edge. And then everything is going to be positioned according to the bottom leading edge of those entries. Um, so you can go ahead and position everything that way within the stack. You can nest the stacks, so you can have one that's leading and one that's trailing, um, and get really creative with how you kind of position stuff. Um, there's also a spacing parameter in uh, in all of these stacks, and it's very much a magical spacing uh, that tries to do the best thing depending on like uh, the views that it encounters. I always set it to zero because I don't like magical spacing. Um, It it usually doesn't, you don't usually notice it until it's doing something slightly wrong. And then you're like trying to combat it and then you change the order of your views. And then it's however you try to combat it is not working anymore. Um, So for spacing, I usually set it to an explicit zero uh, for my H and V stacks. uh, And then I will use padding liberally Mm. um, all over the place. Uh, Because padding is a great way of, like, manually specifying how you want to position things. Um, And it's a great way of determining, like, along individual axes, like, how you want stuff to interact. So, for instance, uh, along many of my views, you can give padding and then, like, specify edge insets. And that's, like, an okay way of doing it. But oftentimes, you just want the same horizontal padding on both sides. You can do Mm -hmm. padding.horizontal. 20 points um, and then you also want some vertical padding so on the next line you just say dot padding dot vertical uh, and then you give it 10 points um, or sometimes you just want it on the bottom edge so dot padding dot bottom 10 points and then you only have it on the bottom edge um, so you can specify as many paddings as you want in a way um, and what it's actually doing under the hood is making a brand new container view with that padding um, and all of that distills away once uh you actually render it out again you're not making real ui views you're just supplying layout information um, so you can you can do quite a bit with uh padding like in general
1: mhm yeah it's pretty cool um like for example just kind of the convenience uh methods for padding where mm-hmm. you don't have to supply all of the insets you can supply dot all or uh, or actually uh, you don't even need it, dot all if you're doing all of them yeah. Um, but anyway, that's my point is there's it makes it sort of convenient if you really only care about putting a bottom spacing on something or whatever. Um with that, um, I, did we talk about modifiers in in the last episode?
0: Uh, I don't believe so. Um, so do you want to give a quick rundown of what they are?
1: Yeah. So a modifier is, for example, this padding is kind of this. Uh, I guess you could and Dimitri can definitely correct me here because I I've very very rarely made my own uh modifiers, but I think it's really just a function that takes in the view and some other information and performs some transformation and then returns the new instance of the like that container view that Dimitri said. Is that more or less right?
0: Yeah, so there there's two kinds of of modifiers. There's lightweight modifiers and there's um more extensive modifiers. The lightweight ones are basically just an extension on view, which everything uh, conforms to. Um, And you can here just say self. That's the view that you were like operating on and just stack on a whole bunch of other modifiers. So uh, you're not really like keeping any state. You're just kind of going and simplifying uh, code that you would have boilerplate-y a little bit everywhere um, in that sense. Uh, the more extensive modifier is interesting because it's not quite a view, but it does still have uh, the concept of a body and the concept of state. Um, so it can go ahead and without needing to like make a view with a closure and all that, it already has that built in. Um, so you just need to worry about uh, adding extra functionality um, that you need to add. Maybe you uh, need to compute some... Uh, sizing for instance mm. so you can have that be in the modifier depending on variables that are passed in um, and it can go ahead and keep track of that state for you um, and then you, you will end up eventually making an extension on view to call your modifier um, in with some nicer syntax so it's not just .modifier and then you pass in uh, a constructor for your modifier um, but uh, that is a neat thing about the modifiers is you can you can store state along with them uh, which the lightweight ones, which is just an extension, you cannot. Um, so that's that's the big difference. But the lightweight gotcha. ones, you can still pass in information and then mm-hmm. divide or multiply or do whatever you need to do to distribute it amongst other modifiers. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just creating a new view, a wrapper view around mm-hmm. whatever you call dot on. Um, and uh, like from socioI' point of view, these are cheap things. Uh, so it can go ahead and make as many of these as it needs.
1: Right, yeah. And when you say make a new view, and I also said make a new view, it's, again, just supplying that layout information. It's not like you're mm-hmm. actually initializing a new view and kind of creating something more um, extremely heavy, like an entire new view would be. Um, cool. That's, yeah. So uh, I just, for me, this this last couple of weeks when I've been working in Swift i um if you just go into the documentation and look at view uh just the the um protocol itself it'll show you all of the built-in um modifiers and you know of course it's everything about the the uh sorry the protocol itself but there's a lot there we only talked about like padding and offset but there's uh tons that you can do changing the color um definitely well a lot of accessibility things um i don't know making toolbar items help items uh I mean there's a ton there so mm-hmm. if if you're wondering about how to do something like change something about a view, it's probably in a modifier is is gonna be my guess if it's mm-hmm. not a part of some initializer setup like Dimitri said with the um uh like the stack spacing or something or alignment or something like that
0: hmm and it's it's easy to forget uh, but the canvas is interactive um so you can go yeah. ahead and use. Uh, the library for the canvas to browse these modifiers that are kind of available to you and you can drag them into your code and you can go ahead. Like there's a shortcut that you can do in your code and you get like a little palette of all the modifiers that you can go ahead and use. That is not code uh, necessarily. Like it's just saying, Hey, this one does this, this one does that. Mm -hmm. There's all icons. Um, And that's a great way of kind of exploring what's available to you as well. um, If you aren't like super familiar with all of them yet. Uh, the documentation is kind of a mess because these are generic towards anything. Um, right. So it's like there's not a good place to just put them, um, which is unfortunate. Um, and it's kind of a new problem, which we haven't really ever had. It's not like view is a superclass. It's like, no, any view has these modifiers, but any view can have a slightly different version of this modifier. Um, and you'll see that described in the Swift interface if you kind yeah. of command click and you get lucky enough where Xcode. Generates it fast enough to actually show you the thing; otherwise, it just puts you at the top of the file and then you're totally lost. Um, but uh, there, there is quite a lot you can do with the built-in modifiers. So uh, you probably won't find yourself needing to make your own until you get really comfortable with uh, what is there, and you really want to change uh, some built-in behavior uh, to do something very different.
1: Yeah, and when you said that, I had honestly completely forgot about like the object library for, or modifier library and interacting with the swift ui visually i just write the code i mm-hmm. i completely forgot that that's even a thing that you do so uh yeah it's it's nice i just i personally never use it really so but it's nice to be able to drag and drop i think that's probably a really nice thing especially kind of getting into it and seeing how you know, it'll it'll put it in the right place, assuming you drop the whatever the view or the modifier is, um, and you can kind of see that instant uh, code feedback, which is cool. So,
0: mm-hmm. um, and we didn't really talk about it too much, but it's it's probably a good point to mention how the layout system works. So, unlike with constraints, where Uh, every view has kind of an intrinsic content size and then you kind of build up from there and then you have to satisfy a complex algorithmic constraint system uh that just like it either works or it doesn't and then spews tons of errors in your logs as as i'm sure everyone (laughs) has kind of seen before um there's no app that's immune to this because even if you do all your constraints right apple won't (laughs) so you're always going to get those logs uh no matter what you do um so SwiftUI works very differently in that the topmost parent kind of tells the next view down, hey, there's this amount of space. How much do you want? Um, and then that view can go ahead and use that information to ask its own view, its own child views. Hey, there's this amount of space. How much do you want? And then the child view can say, I only need this much space. So then the view itself will be like, okay, I only need that much space too. Um, so it'll we'll kind of go from the top down and then back up uh, and bubble that information that way. Um, and that's how the stacks work as well. So, oftentimes you end up with um, situations where like, you're not too sure what the layout system is going to do. Always try to remember that uh, SwiftUI is all about proposing a size and then deciding how much space your view actually wants and then the size of the parent will match that. Um, so that's, that's how it kind of calculates everything. Uh, and this is something that comes up a lot when you're dealing with things that are not just H stacks and V stacks, but also Z stacks, um, where you might think, oh, Z stack is just to layer stuff on top of each other, like if you have a stack of cards. And although you can do it that way, that's not really where the power of Z stacks lie um think of it more of you just have views that would have typically been child views in like UI kit where you have a background and then you have a scroll view on top that is fundamentally just a z stack where you have a color and <laughs> then your scroll view and however big one of those views needs to be say the scroll view says hey i want to be 400 by 400 points then the color is gonna try to be as big as that. Or vice versa, uh, the color might say, hey, I'll use all available space that you give me. Um, so it tries to be as big as possible. And then scroll view is saying, hey, I want 400 by 400, but if you have all the space available, I'll go ahead and take it and it'll be even bigger. Um, mm-hmm. So you can you can do some pretty neat shenanigans uh, with like ZStack and color.clear. Uh, to make the Z stack as big as possible and, t- and kind of take up as much space as possible um, and then anything in your Z stack will re- will react to that so you can have your H stack or your v stack inside of there um, and then that can be uh, taking up as much space as you need it.
1: Yeah, um, that's something that I've done okay so for example, um, <clears throat> there was a bug that that we found um, or I think actually a user found. Um, in that number pad that I was making like six or seven months ago or whatever, um, it, I did that in Swift UI And what they are are buttons, and of course inside of a button you just sort of it just has a closure and it says, "Hey, give me some view to kind of make as the um, interactable the part contents. of the button." The contents, yeah. And what I ended up doing was you know doing something like that where I had a background and everything. Um, but what ended up happening, and it had, uh, I think text that just said enter on it and it was only that enter button and what ended up happening was i had a z stack that um it sort of it made it so that i don't know if it was all the time but at least with an apple pencil specifically only the text itself was uh tappable instead of the entire kind of frame of the button with you know a little bit more padding and everything Um, and something that i've done is and maybe you know a better way to do this but I've just made uh, a color that is almost clear. And it seems like clear doesn't quite recognize taps from what I've seen. So I had to do like, you know, uh, whatever color and then opacity of like 0.001 or something just to make it like trick the layout engine to say like, this is tappable or something. I don't know if you've experienced that before, but uh, yeah, kind of (laughs) weird.
0: That's terrifying uh because there's a much better way uh there's okay. content shape <laughs> uh there's content shape which we'll go ahead and i think it's called content shape it's called content something i know that um that, that's a thing as you as you gain more and more experience with development you end up remembering less and less like off the top of your finger like what something is called but you know what the autocomplete will give you <laughs> right exactly that, that's gonna be just enough for the autocomplete to kick in and then i'll be like ah that's the one Um, and then that day Xcode autocomplete doesn't work, then you're, you're very, very sad because you're like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's what that, Hey man, that's what makes the M1 Mac so worth it is that if autocomplete is even just that much more, uh, reliable, then it's worth it to me.
0: Apple sponsor our show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) give Uh, us a
1: new Mac pro please.
0: Yes. Soon. Um, But, yeah, so you can use content shape, uh, which will go ahead. It's, like, made for this if you read the documentation. If it is called content shape, I don't know. I'm going to look it up after the show. Uh, But uh, that's one option. Uh, The second option, uh, which I kind of love to do, is to kind of use padding uh, against what it's supposed to be used for. So think think of it this way. You have a tiny piece of text, right? And you want that to be your button. So you add some padding around it, let's say 20 points on every side. Now you have your text, which is really tiny, and then you have 20 points on every side, so you have a comfortably shaped button. But now your button is massive, right? Um, And it might, like, if you need more than one button next to each other or a button next to some text, now you're going to have some obnoxious padding. Um, So what you do outside the button is you say negative padding by the same amount. So what you do is you change the layout shape of the button to be just the size that you need it to be. But the contents of the button is very large. And if you remember what I said about previously, where uh, you can have views like escape their boundaries and they'll still like be interactive, that works in this case as well. So the button is going to be fully interactive where its contents lie. So even though you have that negative padding that kind of makes it bigger... Um, and even though the padding is transparent, um, that's still interactive. Mm-hmm. So the button can be like tapped with a very comfortable um, touch area, but the layout area will be much smaller. So to reiterate, inside your button, you put a positive padding to make it bigger. And outside mm-hmm. of your button, you put a negative padding to make it smaller by the same amount. Um, and you end up with what you had without the padding in terms of layout, but in terms of tap area, you have something very comfortable. And you can be asymmetric about this. So you can go Mm -hmm. ahead and say, put a bunch of extra padding on the trailing edge, but not the leading edge. Um, If your button is like on the the leading side or the left side of the screen, that way, even though there's not any more room off screen, you can have more room uh, towards the right where a finger will be able to comfortably tap.
1: Okay, so... I mean, visually, there's no change. You're just increasing sort of the, I guess, hit box of, mm-hmm. of the cube exactly, itself. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, question. I, maybe this isn't worth getting into, and we can kind of cut this out if you want. But with that, like, I think my whole thing was I was along with that would be if I add a you know a set padding. I think what I was trying to do with that was make it so it would kind of fit in any place that I put it. So then if I don't want to give it like a set amount of padding where it's like 20 points or whatever, then what do I do? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) that that 20,
0: that 20 points is purely for the tap area. It's not for the layout. So outside of the button, you can give additional layout padding or just put it in an H stack or V stack and it'll kind of lay out with everything else. So it's really up to your creative decision. If you want this to be horizontal or if you want it to be vertical, typically you want it to be vertical because things are wide horizontally, especially text. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, things like text are short vertically, so you do want to be able to position them a little bit more. Um, not position them, but give them a little bit more breathing room for our fat, chubby sausage fingers uh, to to be able to hit in one go.
1: Gotcha. Okay. This is maybe a good uh, transition into our next kind of part, which is talking about geometry reader and... Mm-hmm. I, my, my follow-up was going to be, well, I could probably use Geometry Reader to get the exact amount of size, but Dimitri has a warning about a Geometry Reader. so.
0: Yeah, Geometry Reader. Uh, there be dragons. Um, <laughs> so the, the biggest problem with Geometry Reader is it can take up as much room as it needs, just like any other view. But if you don't need all that room, then you lose the ability to constrain it in any way from that point. So although you can, like, the best use of Geometry Reader, I would say, is to stick one at, like, a very high level um, and then bubble down that information via environment, like, objects and stuff like that, or environment properties that you define yourself, environment values, that's the word. Um that's probably the best way to go about using Geometry Reader because then you can get some high-level information about like what device you're on, how much room do you have for your whole screen, uh, those kinds of things. But if you're making a small little component, you don't really want to use Geometry Reader for that because, again, you lose the layout ability that SwiftUI gives you for free, which allows your view to just kind of be as big as it needs to be. Um, this is especially obvious in things like scroll views where if you just have like a VStack and then you have individual parts that you want to be interactive for whatever reason so you make those geometry readers those geometry readers will be able to tell like hey, my position in the scroll view is this, but I have no height anymore so you cannot like implicitly size anything anymore and you have to manually specify heights all over the place and that kind of it's it's like a, a fighting you can't make anything generic at that point. You have to make everything super specific. You have to decide, mm-hmm. oh, this view is gonna be four hundred points because it has to be four hundred points, and this other one has to be two hundred points. And it's it's a bit unfortunate that um, you kinda get stuck with that whenever you do want to use a geometry reader. But in if if you are like if you do want to use a geometry reader, they're really neat because they do give you like exact sizing of like mm-hmm. how much the parent gave you because the geometry is like, Hey, the parent is giving us this, like decide what do you want to do? Um, but, but, At that point, it might be tempting. Hey, we can use like a preference key or something. I've never used those before, but this seems perfect. We can bubble information back up. Uh, And then you suddenly start getting logs that say, uh, hey, you can't send a preference key more than once per frame and you're doing it wrong. And then you're like very disappointed because you thought, hey, (laughs) a geometry reader, I just wanted my buttons to be the same size Uh, as I divided by two and now everything is chaotic and not working Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sad. Uh, and geometry reader stupid, and I just want to go back to UI kit now. Um, that's like a very tempting like thought stream that I'm sure many people have gone through, and some have given up SwiftUI entirely because of that. Um, but if you can get your job done without geometry reader, or if you're only using geometry reader at like the highest level where you do not care about using less room than every amount of room that is available to you. <laughs> Uh, then, like, it's a totally fine tool to go ahead and use in those situations.
1: Cool. Lesson learned. I've definitely, we kind of had an earlier, I guess, conversation in our Slack group about uh, Geometry Reader, and I've definitely intentionally steered away from using them kind of in this current work that I'm doing. And I think, like, that, along with, um, like, the color thing, like, I know that, I shouldn't have to do like 0.001 opacity. That feels wrong. And so I think like the lessons that I'm learning as I'm kind of learning more about Swift UI is like it's fairly mature to the point where if you're doing something that you feel is weird, there's probably a better way, is Mm -hmm. kind of the vibe I'm getting. So.
0: Yeah, and to, and to be clear, like th- there's a ton of this in UIKit as well. Like, for instance, if you mm-hmm. want to have a paging scroll view and you want to control how much space is in between the items, guess what? You have to make your scroll view wider or shorter than the screen, and that's that's the only way to do it. Um, and you can, you can choose to use the newer delegate methods, but if you're doing this before those delegate methods existed, then tough luck. And if you want the exact physics of paging... Uh, and you're trying to imitate that with the delegate methods, then tough luck because they're different. Um, So like, there are these trade-offs with both of these frameworks, um, and it really comes down to how comfortable are you with each of them. Um, And it's really tempting when you're really comfortable with one of them to not struggle in the other one, because it's by struggling that you're going to either find a way around the roadblock or just think of a different solution. Whereas if you already know the answer in the other framework, then you're going to be like, forget this. I don't have time for this. And then you just go and do it the way you're used to. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is something that I feel that we as people that got used to like programming via UI kit, uh, it's a very hard thing to just accept that we are not going to instantly be good at the new thing um and therefore we don't give it the chance that it deserves that we would have given it if we were le- learning the new thing first if that makes any sense
1: oh totally yeah i mean it took me until six or so months ago to really w- try to use it in any kind of way other than just as a, a toy app you know throwing some surf UI and a toy app to kind of see what the, what's there i mean it's you definitely get used to UI kit and I've been doing it, you know, the least amount out of anyone um in the code compositionist, so it's like I I can definitely tell that, you know, even with me, old habits die hard and you just kinda wanna stick with what you know, which makes sense, but at the same time it's like maybe not at this to the same degree, but maybe it is, I don't know uh you know the same sort of transition from objective c to swift like it's kind of that's the way it's going and between the last you know couple updates uh or update or maybe two i don't know i again i haven't been following swift that much but the the last couple things that they've done with swift ui to add like lazy stacks and all that and it kind of increased the amount of um I guess feasibility that you could really effectively write most of an app with Swift UI kind of makes it seem like, yeah, they're, you know, uh, Apple's in on, uh, or not in on it, Um, like they're all in on it, right? They're they're going to continue to make it better. And so it just seems like um, UIKit and I guess by extension, you know, uh, AppKit are probably going to go the way of the Dodo. Um, I don't know how long it would take, but it's, been a fairly pleasant experience all things considered for my lack of experience with swift ui this last little bit uh to see what you can do with it so Mm -hmm.
0: and and like a few more examples because i think that was very interesting what you brought up uh going from objective c to swift for instance um a super common thing in objective c is everything is an object right uh so if you have a bunch of objects that you're going to have an array you'll like have a common protocol um or something that is probably the wrongest pattern you can apply to swift right if you have an array of protocols then it will work just like it will work in objective c but you'll like have all over the place you'll have uh if this as my type um because Mm -hmm. like you need to unwrap those types as you get to them uh and sometimes the protocol doesn't like establish everything you need to do with them and then you have typecasting all over the place and uh air else blocks with like fatal error conditions just to make sure you didn't miss anything and swift actually provides a much better tool for this which is enums um with associated values so you can have a main enum type which would have been your protocol and then individual cases for all the types that you're going to run into you're not making a system that Other people are going to use you're making something for apps you can define all the cases and guess what if you add a new case now the compiler is helping you by telling you hey you got to count for this case in all these different places where you use switch statements and that's the reason why you should never use defaults in a switch statement because you want to be able to catch the scenarios that you're not like caring for at the moment so that way when you add them in the future it just helps you um it's it's holding your hand through that entire process so uh, just as Swift provides very different ways of thinking about problems than Objective C did, uh, Swift UI is providing very different solutions uh, that UIKit doesn't really ever account for. Um, and the new difficulties that come with this are something that you need to change your mental model about, or you're not going to be able to succeed as well. And changing your mental model just means living with it for a little bit and not giving up. Um, because it, it will click just like programming eventually clicked the first time any of us were learning it it's like if you think about it, it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo no one understands any of like what code looks like the first time uh, you look at it in fact i would garner to say that most coders don't know how to read code like we know how to write code just fine uh, but just like r- speaking and reading are two different um things that you need to nurture in your own life to be able to be good at them uh reading code is not something that most coders are good at from day one like you can learn how to write some super simple um code or apps and get better and better at that but unless you like force yourself to read other people's code you're never going to kind of improve at that either right
1: yeah for sure i mean that's that was something i definitely had to learn coming into this job with an existing code base of like okay mm-hmm. i you know i can go in and make a new feature or whatever completely alone but then integrating it into my own or into the rest of the app or more accurately i suppose fixing bugs is where you know most of the time you're probably looking at someone else's code uh well yeah, in my, in the app I'm working on, it's so large that even most past of the coding... you
0: is someone else's code. <laughs> that's <laughs> I mean, true. That's like true. Three, times ago, three months go by, right?
1: It's yeah, really intimidating. for sure. It is. It's very intimidating, and you know, I mean, I have spent, of uh, like hours sometimes trying to even run through what is going on for maybe like a one line fix. But mm-hmm. I have to understand the problem, and so that's that's huge. And I definitely agree with you. Um, going back to you know I I guess now feels like a really good time to learn Swift UI because again it's it's pretty I guess mature in the sense that mm-hmm. a lot of it is functional um, but also there's not only just documentation for it but many many um, you know like Paul Hudson has a bunch of articles and stuff on it and I remember when I Again, back to sorry. This is becoming a, a theme here, but back to WWDC nineteen, uh, the the week, and I think probably about the month or so after that, um, if you Googled Swift UI, Google would say, "Did you mean Swift?" Because it just there was literally nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're at the point now where there are resources for you to learn. Um, yeah, and people have done stuff.
0: And as you mentioned, like if. You need help with SwiftUI. If the first, second, or third link in Google is Hacking with Swift by Paul Hudson, click it. That is the solution to the problem you have.
1: Yeah. They yeah.
0: are so bite-sized and so easy to understand and to be like, oh, that's what I'm doing wrong and that's how to correctly approach it. That that really, like, that should have been Apple's documentation, but it unfortunately isn't. Uh, but fortunately for Paul Hudson... Uh, he can now claim the top spot on Google because he has such perfect bite-sized pieces of knowledge that solve like very specific problems with SwiftUI, um, Mm -hmm. that are not really problems because once you see the solution, it's like, oh, that's very straightforward how to go about and do that. Um, it's not like a mumbo, uh, a mumbled Jess, um, I'm forgetting how to speak, um, it's not a mumbled mess that's that's the word i was trying to say. Um, jumbled mess is probably what you're going for. jumbled mess. oh gosh, i'm having a <laughs> stroke live on a podcast. Um, so joking aside strokes are no fun. um that that is something that is is really an invaluable resource that i hope yeah. everyone can like spot when you do need help um is is do look for hacking with swift blinks because they will Um, or not just hacking with swift links um uh swift by Sendell links are also great Mm -hmm. avoid medium links i i'm sorry anyone who writes anything serious on medium uh it takes forever to load and you have to like scroll for ages pass a bunch of memes and stuff and it's not helpful um so sorry i i like i don't want it to be that way but you're not it's not it's not useful for the we need a solution (laughs) That's fun
1: time. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the best parts about hacking with Swift is everything is so concise. And there were a couple that I looked up uh, just the other day this week where it was maybe two paragraphs, if that, uh, and a snippet of code. And that's all I needed mm-hmm. uh, for whatever the Swift UI problem was. It wasn't this entire 10-minute uh, length article. Um, you know, so and sometimes that's all you need. Sometimes you do need something more in-depth, but... Uh, for like Dmitry saying, these very kind of specific Swift UI problems. A lot of the time, they are super concise, and that's kind of what you want. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's coming from a reputable source as well.
0: Yeah, and I've said in the past, like especially on the show, I believe, um, if you do want to search through past episodes, that I felt like Swift UI was missing, like fundamental primitives to build your own stuff in it. And that mm-hmm. was like the core thing that it was lacking. And three years later, we still didn't have that, and I I was like disappointed. That was a naive like sentiment, uh, I would say nowadays, uh, because like I, coming from me directly, uh, it's possible to rebuild something as complex as collection views entirely in SwiftUI. Um, this is something I've done for a private project, and the only piece of UI kit that I touched was re-wrapping scroll view to be slightly different. Like it was maybe 60 lines of a UI view representable just because I needed uh, the ability to get the scroll position more reliably than using a geometry reader. again, geometry reader evil. Um, <laughs> but uh, doing it myself like gave me all the pieces I need to one, do lazy view loading such that I don't need to actually build out views, for all the cells that come before or after. I can just do that mathematically and give a color.clear a frame. And that color.clear is now how big my scroll area is. Uh, then I can do a separate pass to determine, okay, which views are on screen. And once I collect that information, I have a list, an array of model objects that are on screen, and I can pass that to 4H, which will just draw those objects. And then finally, you might wonder, well, how do you position all of this? this? Well, you have offset and you have frame. Frame gives you the size and offset gives you the position. If you have a Z stack, which is top left aligned, then you have the usual coordinate system that you're used to from that point forward. Um, and mm. as a bonus, it works on Mac OS and iOS the same exact way, no coordinate system flipping. Uh, right, so yeah. like, this is something I built. It works with iOS 13's era of SwiftUI. UI. Like we could have done this from day one, but none of us had the experience and the, different model of thinking that was necessary Uh back then um but none of the new stuff kind of enabled any of this uh the only thing that i had to finagle was a state object um because i still need ios 13 uh support uh so i finagled that with an observed object in the state carrying the same thing um so like ever all the building blocks were there uh it's just unfortunate that there was no like in-depth uh, examples coming directly from Apple probably because they didn't really know like fully what something was was capable of. It really reminds me of um, console generations where the first games that come out for the console are like super basic. Not not yeah. nowadays, I would say, but back in the day. like Nintendo 64, first games that came out, not the greatest uh, in terms of 3D capabilities. Uh, then you have Ocarina of Time that came out what, six years later, and it has all the bells and whistles that like, how did they, how were they able to do all of this on the same console? You might wonder. Well, it's because they had more experience with it. They lived with it a little longer. They knew all the tips and tricks. They, they invented tips and tricks along the way. And even though the hardware didn't change, they were able to get more out of it, right? Um, so uh, that same kind of mentality exists for the frameworks that we use, um, especially new paradigm shifts like Swift UI.
1: That's an interesting way of thinking about it, for sure. Um, just kind of having that specific domain knowledge and knowing—I don't know about pushing the limits, but knowing the cap, like the true capabilities of of something—that's mm-hmm. super cool.
0: Yeah. So, um, I guess we can run through a bunch of like the other little notes I have here of yeah. what of like useful tips and tricks because that's that's all, what this is all about—is sharing that. We can't just like tease you and say hey it's possible to do the super complex thing uh just don't give up and then see you next week everyone (laughs) um so with that in mind like here are some things that are super useful um that you might not necessarily know about uh the first one is fixed size and fixed size is a bit confusing in terms of like what it actually does uh but if you think about it it's really about not accepting the proposed size from the parent that's coming down, and just saying, "No, I actually want a specific size, and I want my size, and I wanted to, I want that to be the the size that I'm going to be." Um, and then the parent has to force to adapt, whether it centers you or it will grow around you. That's that's uh, uh, that's that's uh, something else, um, but. It's, this is especially useful with things like text, where you might notice if you don't use fixed size with text, sometimes you get your text laying out, sometimes it just has a dot, dot, dot on it. Because mm. the text is always going to try to just use the available space that the parent is giving it. However, if you use fixed size, you can go ahead and say, hey, the width it can be flexible, but the height, I want that to be fixed. Um, so at this point, the, the text is going to always take up as much room as it needs In terms of height and then bubble that upwards when the views kind of resolve their layout and that will oftentimes fix a lot of issues you have with flowing long lines of text so anytime you have text always give it a fixed size and that will kind of help you out another situation to use fixed size is with z stacks and that's for similar reasons z stacks have many different views that are inside of them Um, So you can ask it to be exactly the size that it wants to be rather than take up all the amount of room um, or not enough of the room. Uh, So uh, do look at that if you are kind of running into any issues.
1: Yeah, fixed size has been interesting. And I ran into, I can't remember if it was this week or last week, where I, I did have to use it for text for sure. And I think, like Dimitri said, a cool part about that is you can specify, do you want a fixed size on both vertically and horizontally or on just one? So it is pretty flexible in that way. Um, interesting about, ge- uh, I, I, sorry, not geometry reader, uh, about Z stacks. Um, so I guess if you wanted it to not take up like the entire view's size, but you just said, I want it to be, 400 by 400, it would do that, or am I? Maybe I didn't quite understand what you meant about the implementation with the z stacks.
0: Yeah, so it's all about creating a counter proposal to the size that the parent is kind of asking of you. Um, so if you don't do the trick where I said previously, where you have like a color dot clear inside the v stack to kind of make it maximally take up all the amount of room, um, mm-hmm. you can go ahead and use this to. Uh, tweak it in just the right way where it might have ended up too small for the contents that are in it, and then the contents ended up shrinking themselves to accommodate for that space. Um, okay. So this will go ahead and tell it, hey, don't don't shrink past that point um, where you feel like you are now being constrained. Uh, you can mm-hmm. think of it like the hugging cons- um, priorities um, mm-hmm. in Auto Layout, even though it's kind of different. Um, but it is in a similar vein to those.
1: Okay. So, okay. um, With that, um, and this is something also with modifiers is, um, and maybe not with all. So this is my question here. Um, For example, if you uh, give a, a V stack, a foreground color of white that propagates down through all of its sub views, right? Yep. So does that happen for everything, including fixed size? And that's why, all of the sub-views will take up as much space as they need? No. Does that make
0: sense? So, yeah, you can think of modifiers as, like, some of them are environment values and others are, like, proper container views. Um, I would say the foreground color is an environment value kind of modifier. And this is still an area where I'm a bit disappointed by Apple's API decisions. I think it would have been a lot more useful for them to make all of those environment values that those modifiers, like... Touch, um Mm -hmm. publicly accessible. Um and some of them are, but not all of them are. Um one such instance is like, hey, if you want to do your own uh containment uh with dismiss, uh that won't work. You cannot use dismiss with your own presentations. You can only use it with the provided presentations. Mm -hmm. Um where like we could I could have imagined a scenario where there's a modifier to pass in your own dismiss handler. And then any child that calls it will kind of bubble up to your modifier because that's what's happening under the hood um, mm-hmm. via uh, preference keys and, and uh, environment objects uh, or environment values, I should say. Um, it's just not being uh, propagated publicly via the keys that are provided. Um, so that's that's one class of modifiers. And then the other class of modifiers, like fix size or frame, uh, they or padding. Uh, they're very much just wrapping the view in another view with some slight layout modifications.
1: Mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that makes oh, yeah, now that you say like padding and everything that that makes total sense that of course that doesn't propagate down to all the <laughs> sub. Yeah, all of okay. a
0: sudden, like everything would have. It's like saying, uh, <laughs> "What's what's the the shortcut in HTML and CSS for that?" It's like star, and then you just put padding, and then all all of a sudden, everything has padding. Every- uh, yeah, there. right, yeah, uh, yeah. So that that's not what padding does. Um, okay, so it, yeah, there are a lot of similarities with uh, the layout systems that web developers are used to, um, but then there are a lot of like course corrections, I would like to call them, where they decided. <laughs> yeah that wasn't the best decision to kind of have it be that flexible so we're gonna have a more opinionated stance for swift ui sure. um and therefore yeah you can't do super complicated crazy things like you can in css uh but things are a bit more um what's the word where they're more consistent and like easier to arrive at a mental like the human can follow the process <laughs> as much as the computer can if that makes any sense
1: Oh, totally. There's some crazy stuff on like CodePen of what mm-hmm. people have done with just HTML and CSS, and you're like, how do they even conceive of this? Let alone mm-hmm. implement it. That's, well, that's again, cool.
0: anyone anyone can learn to write code quite easily. It's it's the reading code that becomes like very hard. You can try to read it, and you still won't really understand like how they came to that conclusion. When when they were writing it, they're like tweaking along the way. And they're like, oh, what happens uh-huh. if I do this over here? Oh, I get that result in. Uh, yeah any any code that ends up as a result of that tends to be tremendously hard to read because it's it's not calculated at at authoring time right of uh, how how like there no one made an outline first before they started writing it um it just happens that way because that was the only way to make it happen right you need to iterate and and adjust it um and the same goes for code like if you if you just iterate and adjust it you're going to end up with something that's very hard to read unless you go in and refactor it before you forget how it all works in your own mental (laughs) model um so if you can do some architecturing and outlining and planning ahead of time uh generally you have a more uh robust system uh that's going to be with fewer bugs because it's going to be better documented and it's going to be more clear of how how and what it's actually doing that's fair so another one uh, of these useful modifiers is uh, frame and offset. Like, as I mentioned, you can build a collection view with these. Um, frame is a little neat because there are two variants of frame. There's one where you can specify, like, a width or height or both or, like, just one of them. Um, mm-hmm. And this is super cool uh, when used in combination with uh, something like uh, color.clear. My, again, my, one of my favorite ones. If you want a Z stack that's infinitely wide... Um, but uh, at a specific height um, or it's only as big as the text inside of it for instance you can have a z stack with a color dot clear in the background and you give that color dot clear height of one I don't know if height of zero works I'd never like tried it it always felt like this shouldn't work so I'll just put one instead <laughs> um, and then text on top of it like visually in the z stack and then your view will be, uh able to grow like vertically according to text and it will always Mm -hmm. take up all the amount of space horizontally there are better ways of doing this i now have learned like you can use uh, a frame with a max height or a max width or a min width like there's all sorts of bells and whistles you can uh turn and that kind of owes itself to the complexity of swift 2 is like how do i know what any of these do there's not like many examples And you end up just, like, trying it haphazardly and seeing what sticks and what works, um, Mm -hmm. which is fine. Uh, But one really neat thing that um, came to mind recently when it comes to uh, SwiftUI and one of the common called-out shortcomings is, hey, with UIKit, if I want two buttons that are right next to each other to be the same width, kind of like OK and Cancel and... Oh, it's not anymore but in old Mac OS OK and cancel were like horizontally next to each other um, and they'd always be the same width because it's it's more pleasant for them to be the same size. Um, how do you go ahead and do that in Swift UI and Swift UI and uh, the UI kit uh, experts would be like, oh I see cat's got your tongue. you can't actually do that in Swift UI and uh, <laughs> that's actually very hard and and you could just set an equal width constraint, an equal constraint and constraint, right? and be done with it. Um, and to that, I propose uh, the following like 15 lines of code, which are the entire thing. Like You're not setting up labels. You're not setting up stacks. You're not doing anything complicated like you would in UIKit. Uh, you just have an hstack with two texts in them. And the magic piece here is you can give them a frame with a max width of infinity. And then however big your hstack is, or however wide your hstack is, both of the child views of your stack, both of the texts basically, they all want to. They both want to be as big as possible, irrespective of their contents. Oh. So if your H stack only has two hundred fifty points available to it, it's going to give half of that two hundred fifty, so one twenty five to each of them, and they're going to be the exact same width. Um, so that's a very convenient way of like specifying those same constraints in a different way. If you just remember that SwiftUI. The child just wants to be as big as it possibly can, and then the parent kind of sizes according to that. Well, if you have two things that are sized differently, just make them size the same, and you can use frame for that. So I'll leave a a sample of that code in our show notes so that way you can kind of uh, see it. But um, oftentimes it really does just require a different way of approaching the problem um, rather than kind of being stuck in the old ways of thinking that, uh if there's not a modifier that would make that easy like there's tons of pre like 2021 kind of articles saying hey if you want to do this you set up your own alignment guides and then it's like 200 Mm. lines of code later and you have two things that are size the same um but it really can be done simply you just need to better understand how the layout model works right
1: okay um, I know. Sorry, I know we're trying to get through this. This is all very like fascinating to me. So the key with that is that you gave it in the frame. You gave it a max width instead of an actual width. Or an mm-hmm. sorry, yeah, the actual width would say like make it infinity no matter what. Yeah, the max width is just saying try to make it up to infinity, but be flexible basically.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay, that's super cool.
0: And with that same parameter, you can specify a minimum width. Uh, and you can say that hey uh, if it gets to that point then it won't like go any further and you can play with that endlessly to get all sorts of different behaviors that you're interested in um, but like the the whole point of that specific example is it's not impossible to do the things many people think are impossible in SwiftUI you just need to sure really wrap your head around it differently um
1: uh yeah, similar that's oh okay. sorry I was just going to say, I think that's the biggest thing is understanding the layout engine under the hood and Mm -hmm. knowing what it's doing. And I'm most definitely not there. And being able to infer when I, you know, give it a, an infinity, you know, frame, max width frame, what is it actually, what does it mean type of thing and all of that stuff. So, um, I think it just, you know, like we said, probably comes with experience and I'm, (laughs) I'm not there. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: But but again, um, the the whole layout contract is very simple. Like it's all about like the parent proposing a size, uh, and then the child becoming that size, um, mm-hmm. and then the child like uh, iteratively doing that down the chain. Um, so once that mental model clicks, then it becomes a lot clearer about like how everything is working. And since SwiftUI is so easy to iterate with, it's I think a mental model that clicks a lot faster for a lot of people um, than it does with UIKit and with storyboards and constraints because all of that is very static. Um, You Mm -hmm. see it just as a static view as a storyboard or once you are able to uh, materialize it in your head, you can go ahead and do it in code uh, and skip the storyboard, but you can't really see it in movement until you run it on device and try something and be like, this broke everything um mm-hmm. whereas with swift ui when you're using that canvas you can very rapidly try all the options that frame gives you and be like nope 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 yes this is what i <laughs> right, wanted. Yeah. um and that is i think something that helps people get comfortable with it very very quickly
1: yeah that's fair the feedback is definitely more instant
0: mhm and additionally at, by this point like we we've had swift ui for i don't know 3 years now um there is a lot of prior knowledge that's been shared at this point. So we are sharing mm-hmm. it here, but uh, you found an excellent guide to understanding SwiftUI layout behaviors as well. That will link that just goes through like basically all the provided views and like, this is what it wants to do. Um, mm-hmm. So if you need a reference, like there are tons out there nowadays. Um, so uh, yeah. Google is your friend. I would have to say in that regard. Yeah, so you have frame. Uh, you can uh, you can go ahead and offset things with dot offset. Uh, mm-hmm. Dot offset I tend not to use as much. I generally will like offset things with paddings because that tends right. to be uh, something that affects other views as well. Um, whereas offset will just kind of take it and just like nudge it somewhere else on top of or underneath stuff. You have no clue. Um, so it's it's a little haphazard in that way. Um, but it is available if you need to position something absolutely um, within within your your canvas. So uh, that is that is always available. Um, there are a bunch of neat views like for each, which have mm-hmm. very specific semantics. So um, never use for each with like a list of indices because then you will never get any changes uh, because it actually listens for changes to the array. Um, and we'll propagate that down to the contents. Uh, so that has a side effect that if anything in your array has the same ID, that view will only be rendered once. So if you ever have a 4-H, and as you scroll in your scroll view, you'll notice like some views disappear and then reappear. Um, that's because those two views have the same IDs. So make sure if you do use 4-H, everything has, a, has different IDs um, like within it. Um, and do know that IDs are used to track like existence for views themselves. So you can do this manually. You can just give a view an ID. Um, and then that view will not be rebuilt in as many situations if the ID doesn't change. Um, or like if you're trying to animate between two views and like the sub views are animating, but not the parent view, give the parent view different IDs for those different situations that you animate. And when you animate to a different ID, then the whole parent view is going to be swapped out um, and transitioned. So uh, that's a that's a useful uh, technique there. Um, what else do we got? Uh, there's a bunch of bridged views. So anytime you have a list, any controls, navigation view, etc., uh, those are all bridged from UI UIKit. Um, I have found myself rebuilding tab views because the bridged version is inadequate, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I tend to avoid list because uh, you end up with the trap that it's a table view under the hood, and the same gotchas with table views exists in SwiftUI, where not all of it is um, uh, not all of it is configurable from SwiftUI. Uh, navigation views equally have the same problem. If you need to mm. mess with the actual presentation of the nav bar, especially now iOS 15, where it like hides it for no reason uh, until it doesn't want to hide it. And then that might mess with all your layouts. Um, so you need to drop down to UI kit, UI, um, what's that called? Appearance UI appearance, uh, to go ahead and like customize it globally, um, or sneak in some code that will like introspect, uh, the view hierarchy and kind of fiddle it with it that way, which always feels kind of fragile. Um, so I tend to prefer the UI appearance route. Um, don't be afraid to break out of the cage with UI view representable yourself if you do have something specific that you want. Um, I think UI search bar or UI search field, what's it called?
1: UI um, search bar, yep.
0: Yeah, uh, that tends to be the, the go-to like UI view representable example because it was never provided until recently and you still kind of need it if you want to do custom search uh, presentation. So uh, that's something that that you still need to kind of, Do quite often uh, if you do want to bridge in something that UIKit provides that SwiftUI doesn't. Uh, And SwiftUI is totally happy with you doing that. Um, It's Mm. like a fully built-in thing uh, to go ahead and bring in views from UIKit, even your own views. Uh, As an example of this, uh, if you are in a completely UIKit app, you can go ahead and use SwiftUI Previews to preview your controller or your view as you're building it um and all you need to do is have your little preview section have a subtype that's called container which is UI view representable or UI view controller representable and in make view you just make your ui kit view and then as you change your ui kit code you'll see it in the canvas instantly uh which is super magical because it is way better than storyboards because you get to see it live um, so, even if you are locked to UIKit, you can still use SwiftUI magic to, to kind of preview things by using UIView Representable, which is pretty neat. This week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by Sticky Widgets. Sticky Widgets is the absolute easiest way to put a sticky note on your home screen and edit it quickly. It's so easy, you never need to open the app itself. Add a sticky widget to your home screen through the iOS Home Screen Editor and tap on it to edit. That's about it. Of course, there's tons of customization options as well. Font, color, text size, alignment, all conveniently located in the system's edit widget interface. Add as many Sticky Widgets as you like or put them in a start smart stack. Sticky Widgets are digital sticky notes for your phone. Use them however you like. Sticky Widgets is a free download on the App Store and additional font color options are available for a one-time in-app purchase. Thank you so much to Sticky Widgets for sponsoring Code Completion. Check out Sticky Widgets on the iOS App Store today. And as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released, and feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to get into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis, that's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter on Twitter for joining me this week. My name once again is Dimitri, you can find me at Dimitri Bunyol. that's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. So, in other news, uh, Nintendo finally fixed their N64 emulation. Uh, Fog is back. Um,
1: Reflections are the way they should be.
0: They're reflectiony. The water temple is as uh, horrible as it always has been.
1: <laughs> At least it doesn't look horrible now. I, what a I, joke, though, man!
0: I, I, as a kid, never found the water temple to be like so reprehensible that the whole internet has kind of like backed as a, a moral <laughs> high ground. <laughs> until now, the only
1: thing I, I, the only thing I remember as a kid. Was I couldn't find one key and it took me, it was like in the middle pillar thing. It took me so long to find that dang key to continue that that's really the only thing that I was like very upset about with the water temple. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, man.
0: And that's the whole point of exploring, right? You're going to miss stuff.
1: I know. (laughs) I know. But it's, yeah, it is very famous, I suppose. Maybe more than it needs to be, but yeah i mean they fixed that i think there was another one with like paper mario i haven't played it, oh, yeah, uh, it well it, i played it as it a kid crash and destroy it would would straight up data. crash dude <laughs> and, and, and it's like when they of them, the process yeah when you have like a specific partner which you will have so it's like it would happen to everyone if they were to progress to a certain point if you Play die testing so you know that's crazy um uh, well let's see paper mario hasn't been out that long i think that came along just a, a little bit ago but like zelda has been out for what three or four months probably mm-hmm. uh so yeah it's seems now uh,
0: okay so they they have been improving it with every point release which is like i applaud you nintendo i was expecting this to forever be broken uh but they like did not like the first release was horrible the The input lag made everything jello-y. The fog was non-existent. Reflections were completely broken. Uh, And then the next release, the fog was still broken, but they fixed the reflections. And then the following release, they made the the input lag a little bit better. And then the following release, like, finally now we're at a point where it's like a one-to-one with the original N64. Uh, In fact, I saw a tweet that for Majora's Mask, they even added lag to the ending... Because if you don't add lag to the ending, then the song finishes after the ending sequence. <laughs> uh, like nice. the ending sequence would just render faster. Uh, whereas on yeah. the hardware, it would they like okay, we're just gonna we're gonna add whatever we need to add or like shorten the song to make it fit the render because the render is just taking too long. Um, so now That's with funny. faster than the computers, the emulation happens regardless of like what the hardware capabilities were. Um, so it's perfectly capable of of just like plowing through those calculations and getting the the ending credit scene finished before the music uh which was a problem on the wii on the wii virtual console i think um so that's was was pretty neat that they actually added lag back in so that way that would that would end at the correct time so at the right time yeah it seems like they are putting effort into improving it and Bravo Nintendo! I didn't think you had it in you.
1: Actually, yeah, do that. it only took the entire internet being mad at you to do it. Mm-hmm. But they took Good it job. seriously.
0: Yeah, like there was an era of Nintendo, like basically the the GameCube era, I would say, where they they did not care as much about other people's opinions, and like it seems like the GameCube was hurt because of that, um, yeah. and therefore they they reverted, and then the Wii. Was something that they were able to get a bunch of developers to help uh, build out one of the best, one of the most successful platforms ever. Um, And then they built the Wii U, and they're like, "Okay, we're back on our high horse, and we know what we're doing." Um, And that didn't work so well. So then they made the switch. So they they always have this like back and forth of like, "Aha!" Um, There's there's that one like anime meme where there's like this this lady in a fighter pilot cockpit of like. They know exactly what they're doing, and then all of a sudden the tables are turned, and they're like, "I have no idea what I'm doing." Um, it's it's that all the yeah. time.
1: Yep, I'm still mad at Nintendo. So,
0: <laughs> are you ready to share yet, or is this gonna gonna stew for a little longer?
1: No, it? I need it. I need to stew. I'm still, yeah. I have a Nintendo story. I don't know. It's not that big of a deal. No. I'm uh, probably making it out to be more of a big deal than it needs to be. But I had to buy another Switch. That's <laughs> the short of it. So we'll we'll talk about that eventually.
0: Well, now, now you have another Switch that you can load ROMs onto the emulator and play old Nintendo 64 games uh, on your Switch. I guess. I don't know um I, No joke. I see. I saw people doing that for the practice roms for speed running, uh-huh. and and I was like, "How did they get the practice rom?" Oh, they can just like hack their switch. Duh, that's how they got the practice <laughs> rom because the practice right. rom will like tell you the angles and stuff, so that way you can do yeah. all the all the silly memory highjinks.
1: Oh, they sp- that's cool. I yeah, I, I guess that makes sense that they can just load up whatever they want on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I, so. Is anyone like? speedrunning the switch version i don't think so oh okay
0: i mean the, I the n64 was... version has been like completely destroyed yeah from like i think on uh, uh, bar. Bobbled-
1: yeah our arbitrary code execution yeah yeah,
0: yeah. stale yep. reference Crazy. manipulation
1: man it goes so in depth like i know we've talked about this before but people's dedication to figuring out how games work is insane mm-hmm. so cool
0: yeah it, it really makes it fun to be a a fan on the sidelines just watching it because every every yeah. like month or so there's just like a, a new it's not an exploit but like a, a new like way they Discovery. found out like how that universe works just like science works in the real world so it's like oh they ran experiments they noticed something was off and therefore they um they, they went and discovered something new, and, like, bravo.
1: Yeah. They're decompiling the entire game and everything. It's And yeah,
0: it's recompiling probably. it with their own code, which is copyright safe, which I think yeah. is awesome because copyright law needs a, needs a fix in it. Yeah.
1: yeah. I just saw that the, um, the unofficial PC port is, like, 90 or so percent of the way done for nice. Ocarina of Time. That's so cool, dude. Oh, my gosh. I can finally
0: run it at 4K. See all those polygons on Link's face. Oh,
1: all ten of them. <laughs> all ten of them. <laughs> and his his box hands. Yeah, dude, it's so good. Oh, I uh, I was watching a video of of ZFG, who is a speedrunner of Ocarina of Time, and you know they've got like multi world online Ocarina of Time, and they were like. It was two people playing in, you know, Ocarina of Time at the same time, but they didn't share... I- or, yeah, they didn't share items, but you could find items for either one of you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the thing they were testing was like, oh, you can hookshot each other. So what happens when you hookshot someone that is in the air, but they're paused, so they stay in the air, and then you can hookshot to them? And, you know, all of this stuff and it, the the experimentation of just, like, how can we break this game is, is awesome. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. So... Good stuff. Yeah. So
0: I think it's I, I always wonder, like, modern game developers, if they look forward to the shenanigans that speedrunners will eventually like I would, find if, if if their game becomes popular enough, right? Like you Yeah. I feel like there's a certain there's a certain part of you as a as a game author that like wants your game to be successful like financially so you can continue to make games. But then there's a second part of you that just wants it to be successful enough to be completely broken in speedrunning challenges just so that way you can like root, like root for them. Yep. Uh, and like I wonder if even in these big companies like Nintendo for instance, day one there were some like very finagly glitches that were found for the physics engine that could have probably been fixed but nintendo didn't necessarily fix the ones that were not game breaking that Mm -hmm. were just funny or uh like you actually had to have skill to pull off like they left those in i would think consciously right because like they would have had to know that people were like clipping into shrines or through gates in the improper way or catapulting them themselves via tree trees yeah yeah to like (laughs) zoom by the the landscape so fast that the whole game glitches for like a has to load for a couple
1: seconds yeah
0: yeah like you know they you just know that they realize this was happening but you hope so mm -hmm.
1: like i don't know if not it's like did they really even play test this thing like try to break it in weird you know ways that like qa people would think of i don't Mm -hmm. know
0: well they probably did because like even now we're finding new ones but it took like five how, how many years yeah. it's been five years it's it's been a while yeah so like they definitely did play test it they definitely did put a lot of quality but like you just know that they resisted fixing a lot of issues that they could have fixed right yeah like i they they were still developing it for a few years like pushing updates and stuff like they could have fixed so true. many of the wonky things that we do nowadays or not we like i i don't do any of them but speedrunners do um <laughs> yeah. and pull off right
1: yeah i was watching a um a speedrun last night i don't know why but it popped up on youtube and it was of of sekiro i don't know if you've you've heard of that game mm-hmm. it's it's from the same people that make dark souls but and elden ring um but it's a um uh, anyway there's kind of this one wall that you can kind of run you gotta use you know all of your movement to get to this wall but once you get through there you clip through it and you start swimming through the air and it you know basically breaks the whole game and it's like i wonder if the dude that like was a part in charge of that wall of making that wall and forgot to put in that you know um i don't know actual you know physics wall where it's not just a texture if he's like oh crap that's my fault or he's like yeah that's my fault that they're doing that you know what i mean so be interesting yeah, they, to they see hold like a party for him
0: uh, like the the, t- the whole yeah whose code was that oh it was bob's code yeah <laughs> go bob
1: <laughs> yeah
0: pretty it's, crazy it's though an influence like... sales of the game you know no it, it's purely like if you go ahead and fix it, then, like, the speedrunning community is, like, mad, but not that mad. Like, they have their versions and their their stuff. Yeah. Like, th- there are ways around, like, those kinds of limitations in terms of, like, when they record records and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, like, yeah, you don't ever see, like, any game developer who's, like, salty about it and, like, trying to, like, fix all those issues. Um, yeah even though they're still developing the game to some capacity. So I think that's like a heartwarming side of the game industry, or at least I hope it is. And it's not just like, Oh, there's no financial like support I, to go ahead and fix those issues. Even I if they wanted say, to say, so yeah,
1: maybe it's just like a, there's no financial incentive, mm-hmm. but I mean, it, I don't know. It's cool that Nintendo, like I remember Nintendo said for breath of the wild, like with one update, they're like, this is the last one. And they just did that for, um, smash. So, you know, like anything goes from then on and, you know, hopefully you find something cool mm-hmm. that they either didn't care to or didn't, you know, purposely didn't fix. So, yeah, speedrunning's cool.
0: <laughs> definitely, definitely get into watching it if you can. I, I don't yes. I don't know, uh, like what is involved with getting into actual speed running. That seems like a, a lot of time and effort um but the community seems super chill and open to people coming in and not at all like mad about you stealing someone else's techniques or anything like that's the whole point um is to just be the human that can perform the task um or if you're not that human be the human that was dedicated enough to make a task to perform the task uh just to make a video um and as long as you as long as you like thank everyone who's involved and uh, be nice to the community like everyone is like super supportive about that so yeah if you want to speed run go speedrun so we can watch your videos if you don't want to speed run go, spe- go speed go run watch speed run other people's runs. speed run videos <laughs> yeah
1: or like you know and yeah just watch you can find the actual like world record videos or whatever but then there's channels on youtube like summoning salt is probably the most oh they like, are awesome
0: did you watch the punch so good that came out recently
1: yes it was so good but summoning salt will go through these like history of these speed runs but mm-hmm. explain how this glitch works or whatever and it's just it, it's fascinating again to see how people have figured this stuff out and there's one with like not the punch out one that just came in but the like the original mike tyson's punch out that's like there was this one guy you never knew uh when he was gonna do this one move and then someone noticed that like The bulb flashing that Mario has on his camera in the background tells you about that move. And, you know, like, people have, you know, played this game for, it's old. It's from, like, the 80s or something or the early 90s. And
0: it's not because the developer necessarily did that, which is, like, the best part of these old games. It's because the random number generator was influenced by the memory that was at that address and just happened to be, like, the signal. Uh, And that's, like, the part that's, like, mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah running is good an excellent note to end off on
1: all right see ya bye